You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com This is Intelligent Talk on City World Radio. We're very happy to have Irene Weiss, who is an Auschwitz survivor. Thanks to the United States Holocaust Museum for arranging this. And uh, just as a brief overview, Miss um, Weiss was taken in 1944. 1944, um, the area that she was in was controlled by Hungary. Hungary was the last country the Germans invaded and took control of. They deposed Admiral Horthy. The Holocaust is seemed to have started uh, traditionally in uh, the Wannsee Conference, January 1942, where the systematic arranging of all the, in an orderly way, as, as the Germans saw it, the killing of the Jews that they had received, it's come under their control with the success they had in the beginning of the war. Um, Hungary still had many Jews left, uh, approximately four to 500,000. About 435,000 were shipped to Auschwitz. Um, Auschwitz, approximately 1.3 million people went to Auschwitz. Uh, 1.1 million were killed. Approximately a million of those were Jews. 200,000 survived, um, and we're very happy to have one of the survivors, of course, with us today. Um, and just to reiterate, as, as a brief overview, Auschwitz was a huge facility. Auschwitz I was basically the camp administration, the original part, which had been barracks for basically Polish soldiers. Um, Auschwitz II was Auschwitz-Birkenau, which was the main killing center. There were two smaller um, gassing chambers that were later replaced in 1943 by four large crematoriums and eight gas chambers. Um, Auschwitz III was basically the, the uh, work camp where people did work for companies like IG Farben, and the SS was making money selling, basically selling slave labor to IG Farben to produce uh, goods at much reduced price. So that's basically the overview of Auschwitz. Now we're going to get into the specifics of, uh, we're very lucky to have the survivor tell us her story and exactly what happened to her. Mrs. Weiss, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. So, Ms. White, I just wanted to do a brief uh, overview of just some people are not aware of the subject, so I'm just going to do a five-minute overview and then ask you specific questions if I could. Um, okay. So, obviously, um, the final solution was the, was the killing of the Jews. Approximately six million Jews were killed. There were six major uh, killing centers. The United States Holocaust Museum says five, and because they say the sixth one, uh, which starts with an M, which is hard to pronounce, was not a full killing center. But, obviously, you were at Auschwitz. As I understand, there were different sections of Auschwitz. Auschwitz I was like the camp administration. Auschwitz II, Auschwitz-Birkenau, was the actual killing site. There were four different crematoriums, eight gas chambers. Auschwitz III was the work camp. There were um, IG Farben, German companies were there. They were manufacturing things for the uh, German industry, German military, etc. So, yes. Okay, great. So just in regards to your life, you were born in what is today uh, Ukraine. Uh, is, is that correct? Yes, it's west, western Ukraine, but it, uh, it used to be uh, between the two wars, it was Czechoslovakia, and then when the Second World War broke out, it became Hungary, and today it is western Ukraine. Exactly, yes. And then 
when the, I believe the last country the Germans invaded actually was Hungary in 1944. They basically removed Horthy. They took control. They shipped, I think, 435,000 Jews out. And you were you were shipped out in, in, in 1944, Mrs. Weiss, is that? Yes, in spring of 1944, right after Germany invaded uh, Hungary. Could you please just tell me the process? Were you were you uh, were you assigned to go to a car or a train or or, or how that how that worked? Please? Well, announcements were made in all the towns, many little towns where there were some Jews living for generations. Announcements were public announcements were made that the Jews in each town should report to a certain gathering place and bring just one suitcase each. And that's all we knew. We, it came suddenly because uh, in 1944, uh, it was one year before the war was over, and we, we knew that the, the Russian front was approaching our area, and so we felt hopeful and confident that we will not be deported like all, uh, the Jews were from all the other countries in Europe. So it was a very big shock. And then we, be, we began to, uh, my family began to figure out what, what we can take with us in a suitcase each. And, of course, we were not told our destination or whether this is a permanent removal or we're coming back. Nothing except be ready to leave your house in the morning. And Admiral Horthy of Hungary relatively was not as anti-Semitic or not as terrible as the people that replaced him when he was removed. Is that fair to say? Yes, that is true. He was uh, ambivalent about it. Uh, but there were other uh, local fascists who were part of the government who at one point had the majority of the government. And when, when that happened, he was overruled. And, you know, the deportations accelerated. And then there, there was a time when it slowed down because of the, you know, Horty gained some uh, power again, so it was back and forth. But unfortunately, the end result was that um, two-thirds of the, uh, well, over 400,000, 440-some thousand were deported in two and a half months, so that it was accelerated and uh, and, and can completed. They, they wanted to complete the genocide of Europe and and, and they had half a million Jews still living in Hungary. So uh, could you tell me then, you, you obviously don't know where you're going. You're now heading to this train car. I assume you just go into the train car, they, they close the doors? And well, uh, yes, well, uh, that was a, an intermediate step. After we gathered the next morning with our cases <coughs> in the little town, <coughs> we stayed there several days <coughs> where they interrogated the men interrogated my father, demanding that he give them all his money and valuables, okay. which they also did before we left the house. A delegation came to our house the, the day the announcement was made, and they t took my father aside and said, you have to give us all your money and valuables. And he did give them whatever, just some family jewelry, you know, a watch, a ring, some earrings, nothing, nothing terrible. We were not wealthy people. But then at the in interrogation at, at the gathering point where we, where, where we ended up the next morning, they 
called in the men separately, and again my father was called in and told that you didn't give us enough, you must have more and give us more. And that, all that was done very roughly and rudely and and demanding. From this place, we were we were in this in our little town in this gathering place a few days, and then they came, provided horse and and wagons, and they piled us into it. There were a total of ten families, ten Jewish families in this town. So they had a few wagons, and they drove us to the nearest large city, which they had where they had established a ghetto, and so that's where we ended up which was maybe a 45 minute ride and when we got there we witnessed the arrival of hundreds and actually thousands of Jewish families from all the many little towns and villages so this became the ghetto uh, of gathering you know together so that the it will be more efficient to go to the next uh, take the next step because again one of the sad things was that we were not told what the next step is, what is going to happen to us. Okay. So, But we were in the ghetto almost four weeks before we were deported to Auschwitz. So this was step by step, and of course each, each step was um, cruel and, and un- unimaginable for families. My, my family had six children, my father and mother, and my father was 47 years old, my mother was 44, and there were six children between the ages of seven and 17. And so when you're thrown out of your home into a a huge gathering of thousands of people without any facilities, uh, life became very difficult. So... uh, but we were we were there awaiting f- further notice and hoping that it was some kind of a mistake and that we will be allowed to turn back home because we were not ad- accused of anything we were not guilty of anything however we were treated like we were no longer citizens and we had absolutely no rights that citizens are entitled to and so this this was a, the original shock and and terribly distressing for for my parents and for all the you know all the grown ups not to mention the kids were also deprived so so mrs white so then at some point did they did they usher you into a train was it a box car like we see in the films and, yes and yes. Could, was that was that, is that was that as awful experience as you can imagine with no food no bathroom just just locked inside a, a dark boxcar with no idea where you're going? That's exactly that. that We were held, this ghetto was well planned. Nothing here was not planned. The ghetto was uh, the site of a brick factory which had huge facilities, land, and also some barracks. And what it had most importantly, it had a railroad siding. And so one day, uh, a very long train of cattle cars arrived on the siding and orders were barked and and yelled and pushed on us that get your stuff and get in the train and hurry up and hurry up and you know very urgently and rudely pushed and and you know urged to hurry and get in the cars and of course we were escorted by soldiers and again there was 
no uh, no one tells us where we're going and why we're going in the cattle cars. I mean, the terror was mounted from the day that they uh, took us out of our home and continued in the ghetto, and then this in a, was the final uh, scary part because as long as we were in our home area, in our neighborhoods and in our own country, we felt that that something, you know, good can yet that can be a reversal. But once we're entering a cattle car, which is moving out of the area, then we were beginning to wonder what our fate is. And so we did. We all, we held on to each other, you know, older kids holding on to the younger kids and, and desperately trying to all get into the same car so we won't be separated and there was a great deal of, of pushing and yelling and and so we were in the finally in the cattle car and people's families uh, you know took a, a little spot on the floor where they spread out a blanket and settled down and that was that was where they were sitting and this took a few hours to fill up the train okay and then it was uh, you know locked from the outside, and eventually the the train was moving. Okay, I mean, Miss, how long was your train journey uh, to Auschwitz? I, I think it was like two days and two nights. Okay, and you know, and and it uh, the destination unknown, and uh, as you say, it was dark in there and no facilities. They put a bucket in the middle for a toilet. But it was very crowded, and and uh, people were sitting. Nobody could lie down, and wondering, you know, great fear and and great anxiety, since we knew that the Jews were declared non, uh, you know, not not no longer citizens, and that laws were made in Hungary, even though we, you know, Hordy had certain feelings about not deporting the Jews, but his government did issue laws that were very similar against the Jews that were very similar to the Nuremberg laws in Germany, which deprived the Jews of all the rights. And so, 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 so you're on this train, you have obviously just that bucket, you have, do you have anything to eat at all? No, no, there was nothing given out, not, no water, no food. At this point, the food we had brought from home was long gone because we were in the ghetto almost four weeks. So there was absolutely nothing. But somehow, you know, the situation was so scary and, and so ominous that people didn't... I don't remember people thinking about food, and even little children didn't ask for food or water. So it, it was very evident that none of that is going to be available. So, Ms. could you please take me to that terrible time that now you arrive at Auschwitz? We've all seen the pictures of what that um, looks like when the train pulls up. And could you just tell me about the selection process and opening the, the doors and, and, and that, that awful experience and, and how you were selected and where people went? Yes, well, we had never heard of Auschwitz. And so when the train finally stopped and my father looked out that little window on the top, he said, well, I see barracks and prisoners in striped uniform, and it looks like it's a labor camp and, and got towers and so on. 
and people actually felt a little calmer because uh, the thing that we we never heard of Auschwitz, but we did hear that terrible atrocities were being committed against the Jews in Nazi-occupied Poland. And when the train took off, we thought we are heading to Poland and that we will be shot on, a, on arrival, because that's what we did hear, but never heard of Auschwitz. So seeing barracks and, you know, young adults, male adults in stri- striped uniform, we thought this would be a labor camp. So that seemed to be a more possible to imagine. And so eventually, when the doors opened from the outside, there was a tremendous amount of shouting and yelling and screaming and urging, get out fast, get out, get out, get out, in German and in, in every kind of language, get out and leave everything behind. Okay. And, and so and my mother urged us all to grab some extra clothes and put on, because it was very cold still. And I put on a big long coat that I had recently acquired. So we all jumped out of the cattle car, and immediately there were more orders shouting, given that, uh, first of all, to leave everything behind. So that meant we didn't have any ID papers, nothing, no citizenship papers, nothing to identify us, and certainly nobody asked our name. So the shouting continued, orders given to men should line up on one side and women and children line up and uh, together at another side. Okay. And uh, that happened immediately. So my father and 16-year-old brother lined up with lots of other men, young and, and elderly. They lined up. That is a picture that the Germans took of this particular arrive, uh, train arriving, that, the train that we arrived on was photographed by the Nazi soldiers. So it's uh, displayed at the museum. Okay. And so uh, when the women and children all got out, they were the much larger group, and the column began to move forward, but we couldn't see what was happening up, up front. In the meantime, we observed that these prisoners... Jewish prisoners jumped into the cattle cars and dumped all our belongings out onto the plant platform, and there were trucks waiting for the stuff to be loaded and taken away. And so as the column moved up, at very soon we were up front, and we were met by about 10 Nazi soldiers who were in the front and also began to be... Uh, in, in, coming into the column to make sure that people are moving, you know, forward. And one of one of these Nazi soldiers seemed to be separating people. As soon as he looked at, at groups, he made certain motions which separated families. So what happened to us was as soon as we appeared to him, he had my uh, mother and two little brothers go to one side, and my 16-year-old sister... 17-year-old sister go to the to another side and then I was left with a younger sister holding her hand and he separated the two of us made me go towards my older sister and her towards where my mother went and all other women and children the crowd crowds were moving so fast that by the time he 
separated me from my little sister, I realized that she will not catch up with them and because there were crowds moving fast. And so I didn't move. I remained standing to the side, leaning in and looking to see if I can see her, and I couldn't. And so I stood there for a while, stunned that she would be alone. Is this a separation where people go to their death and people live? Is, that, is this that separation with people like Mengele? Well, at that point, of course, we had no idea. At that point, it was just the trauma of being torn apart. However, having come from civilization, normal thoughts, we made assumptions that since they're separating young adults uh, and women and children, that is a work camp and that that, that we will be united certain periods of time with our with the women and children and, and grandmothers. That's what we were assuming because it made sense. But, of course, we had no idea that all the women and children and elderly women and disabled, they were all separated to one side and immediately were escorted to a gas chamber. Yes. And that, of course, we had no idea about and only found and out so much yeah, after. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 so now you're separated. Obviously, those terrible things happen. The people walk to their death, and they say that we're going to take a shower and all that. And you go off. Do you now go off to a barracks, or where do you go after this? We go off to what was called a uh, processing place. There was a huge bathhouse where the young adults, in this case uh, the women, and later also the men, uh, we, everyone's, uh, the women, they were all young adults, their hair was shaved, clothes taken, disinfected, body hair shaved, everything transformed and given the one-size-fits-all uniform and marched off into the barracks. And this this was Birkenau, actually, and and when they were processing people very fast because the next train was already uh, approaching the platform, and so this was done in very rudely and very uh, roughly with women who had never been undressed in front of anyone, had never been touched by anyone, uh, and in, in general were humiliated and shown total disrespect like they were not people at all. They were marched off, and so when it was my, my sister and I were among these young adults, the thing was so different that uh, I, I was 13 years old, and it, at this point it didn't occur to us really that um, I was kind of young, and when I, really when I was uh, catching up to my sister, since I lagged behind a little bit, and when I caught up with her, the first thing she asked me is, why didn't you go with mom? Because I belonged with the children. Right. And it seem, seems to me that the reason that the guy made a mistake is because I was so overdressed and also because my hair was cut in the ghetto to begin with, and I was already wearing a kerchief and looked a little bit not like a child. That's, so At any rate, it was um, a, a very, very crude and, and 
vast process of going from being a civilian, a person with identity to nobody. And then they walked us off to the barracks and assigned people to the, uh, you know, many, many people in one barrack and those uh, shelf-like places that we, we were used for sleeping. Mrs. Weiss, as I understand it, there were like 500 people to these rooms. There was one little stove, was it? And it was like eight or nine people on like the equivalent of a of a king-size bed. Was that something like what the sleeping was, was like? Well, absolutely. And that there was one blanket. There was nothing but a board. You lay on the board. Nobody could lie down. The first night, well, we all sat up kind of leaning on each other and people were tired and grumpy. And if, you know, if you fell on someone, they weren't appreciative of it. Everybody was tired and, you know, we literally leaned on each other and no one could lie down. And it was very cold and the blanket, you know, one blanket being pulled around in every direction. It was, it was imaginable trauma because we were recently normal human beings living a civilized way and certainly there was just no no transition was was you know months of transition wouldn't get you accumulate accustomed to this but just in fast fashion you're nobody and mrs why so <laughs> please please forgive me if i ask these questions but you know sure. i'm trying to get through i have so little time with you and i want to just cover as much as i can you were I understand you were eventually signed to the canada area of auschwitz right which was basically looking over people's clothes and, and other supplies that that brought from the train is that correct yeah, that is correct. So for, for about four weeks, we were in this holding place, and then, then they did uh, count off a thousand women and took us to this place, which was adjacent to uh, uh, gas chamber number four. And this was a storage area where all the stuff from the trains and from the gas chambers were brought, all the belongings that people, people brought were stored in this storage area. And we were assigned to sort the stuff out according to category, take off labels, and uh, uh, repackage everything to be shipped to Germany for reuse. And, and that was called Canada because it seems that the, 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 the local, the girls, the prisoners, uh, gave it that strange name because stuff was brought there of every kind, sort of a lot of a lot of things, and so Canada. For the, it seems for Europeans was the place where there is plenty of everything. Not not the United States, by the way. So at any rate, we did work there for about eight months, and the stuff from the trains never stopped, and also from the gas chambers. And we we worked day and night shifts, uh, and we were, um, as I said, next door to this gas chamber which we just a, a elect, an electrified fence separating us. So what happened to us who were right there is that we were exposed to the people coming from the from trains day and night. The Hungarian transports came day and night, and gas chambers and crematoriums were working day and night. And we observed these columns of women and children entering it we watched them we could talk to them they could they you know called out to us from time to time as they saw it saw us 
and asked us who we are and where where we're from and we we knew exactly they were at the gate of of the gas chamber and of course we couldn't say anything to them because it was definitely too late. Mrs. Weiss, did you but, ever see the, the SS putting the Zyklon B into the top of the gas chamber? Did you ever witness that or see that? No. We were very near the buildings. However, there was enough distance. There were, it was in a wooded area. And from what I understand from after, under, what, what documents say is that all the work in the gas chambers and the crematoriums were done by our own Jewish men, by our own prisoners. They pulled out the twisted dead bodies from the gas chambers. They're the ones who, who jammed them into the crematoriums. They were the ones who cleaned up after. They were the ones who cut the hair and pulled out the gold teeth, but they were not the ones who put down the Zyklon B into the opening on the roof. That was the only thing that the Nazi soldier had to do. That was not left to the prisoners. And so, and so that that was not uh, a job that they gave to the prisoners. Weiss, could, you, could you smell things from the gas chamber? Oh yes, smell, definitely smell. There was a heavy smell of burning something. Some people thought it burning garbage. It, it was a heavy smell. But in addition to that, we were very close to seeing the chimneys. And it, it would seem that when bodies are burned day and night, it isn't the smoke that came out of it. There was a very tall flame that was coming out of it. And at night, it was visible all around. But it, the flame was coming out of the, of the tall chimney. And of course, you, you, we smelled the, the smell. We also would see our men, our prisoners, Jewish prisoners on the other side of the fence. We saw them doing certain things outside, cleaning up the area. We Sometimes people dare to throw over a, a, a little note or if, you know, but it was terribly dangerous because there were guard towers all around it. And we, we actually, my, my mother's two young sisters were also there and they were 25, 27-year-olds. And one of them actually attempted to make contact with one of the men that she recognized and I recognized on the other side who okay. worked there. And they did exchange a, a, a paper, a note, and then what the young man wrote and threw over the fence was that my father had also been selected to work there, but in a very short period of time he was shot and he was no longer living by the time we, we were um, assigned to work there. So that is a part of, of the horror story that, you know, a, a father of six children, 47-year-old, devoted to his family and very religious and very gentle and very soulful and kind would get off a train and forced to see his his people destroyed and his and all the many children there's no telling who he recognized there if anyone but it was evident 
that the Jewish people were being destroyed. Absolutely. And so, Miss, could I ask you, did you, were you ever able to bribe any of the guards with things you got from Canada to make things easier or get extra food or anything? Well, I, I, there, is a, there is an event that bears telling. You know, this went on. The, the crematoriums and gas chambers were working for years, but it was so accelerated when the Hungarian Jews, in, in large numbers, brought in there that it seems that some of the workers there, the prisoners, had some kind of a plan with an underground kind of a... Uh, secret uh, connection where they attempted to accumulate explosives to blow up some of the gas chambers and crematoriums or all of them if they could late 44 I, I, think. I, I hasten to tell you that newcomers like we the Hungarian Jews were most definitely not involved in this kind of a very secret thing this went on for years among the old people, uh, old, not old, but prisoners who came years ago, two, three years ago from all over Europe and Poland, and they had, uh, they did in fact apparently had some kind of an underground communication and that they did apparently find valuables in the piles and, and tremendous amounts of stuff that came into uh, off the trains and that they did attempt to bribe truck drivers who went in and out of Auschwitz carrying goods and bringing in stuff. With these Polish However, drivers? we, we no. I have never found anything. None of us ever found anything. We were threatened with death if we did and did not turn it over. But then, when in the, towards the end of 1944, towards, towards, uh, I, I think it was in, in October, uh, there was a huge explosion and the gas chamber nearest us nearest to us exploded and there was a, a, hu- a huge upheaval uh, and that was carried out by these prisoners who had secretly planned this for a couple of years but no it was had nothing to do with the newcomers who would never have been trusted with this kind of very secret event I I believe they did that because those were the so-called Sundu commandos who know that, who knew they were going to be killed, so they had nothing left to lose. And I believe they did damage the crematorium for at least for some time. I think that was the only revolt. Well, no, I, they they put it out of commission. Yeah, put out and, commission. And, and and they were called under commandos. And what as I was telling you, my father was one of those for a period of time. And yes, they were killed approximately every three months. All the ones who were assigned to do that work were marched off and. And, and shot. They did not use the gas chambers for them. They would not have been able to accomplish that, but they did. And we watched these men being marched off. We saw the whole operation. We watched them march, being marched off into, into the distance. And then newcomers were brought in from the trains that were kept coming. And that's how my father fell into that assignment. Mr. White, were, were, um all the guards German? Were there any Ukrainian guards or all the SS guards? Were, were they all German? Well, I, I no, not necessarily. There, I can't tell you. I, I think in Auschwitz they probably were uh, all, all Germans, but uh, throughout Poland and other places, the, the Ukrainians were very eager collaborators. I think Sobobor, uh, for example, had a lot of Ukrainian guards. Um, yes, and, and they were 
if anything, more vicious than the Germans. Do, uh, I I understand that I, from do, reading after. Yeah. Do, so. Um, did you ever see Mengele uh, or or Rudolf Haas, the the commandant of the camp, Mrs. Weiss? Well, if I did, I didn't know who he was. You know, Mengele, he must have been the one who separated my family and did did that job at the platform. But I would never have recognized him after. I mean, there was no way that we looked each other in the face. But, you know, I... Uh, it, if he if he needed someone else to do it, there were others who who were happy to do it. On the platform, there were usually ten or twelve uh, Nazi soldiers running the the separation and the, making sure that it's done uh, without any um, hint of of the consequences of what they were doing. Because the women and children and grandmothers went with their children and grandchildren to one side, again, understanding from normal life that it's a work camp and that they will not be working. And so that was a calming effect. And they certainly were never, even when they were inside the gas chambers, they were told it's a shower. So they needed to do this in a way that nobody had any idea, you know, bank on on people's normal perceptions. and, And that way they were there were no there was no resistance and they didn't have to cope with any kind of resistance mrs weiss when you were actually just going back to your actual those experience in the barracks the food you would get i mean as i understand could you tell me what your hours were at canada what what your work hours were well the work hours were from dawn to till dark and i i don't know that I can say how many hours, but, okay. you know, from very early, we were uh, at 5 o'clock, you know, they would start by getting you out, count, counting, counting you, and and, and uh, also uh, using that when you were lined up like that in rows of five and pulling people out that they missed at the, at the platform, older people, children. I was always vulnerable because once... I, you know, I didn't have the big coat on and so on. I just looked like a kid, and so I was always in danger. So that it, it, the food, well, before, before we even got to this place, the ration for all of the camp was is some kind of a black coffee in a, in a, in a rusted enamel kind of a bowl that was handed out during the counting, but it, it was not coffee, it was, and it always was cold, and nothing else. And then later in the day, there was a piece of bread, which was uh, totally not edible. It, it had very little of what bread should have. It was dense and grainy, and it seemed like it had, literally, we said sawdust in it. It looked like it, and it tasted like it. There was one, uh, the size of the one loaf of bread was approximately like a, a brick, and that was for five people. And then later in the day, there was a soup. Again, the consistency, the taste, and all that, there was no nourishment, and there was no taste. 
And Mrs. And, Weiss... And, 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 you know, in the beginning, we, we refused to eat it. We gave it to the other prisoners. Oh, you, you were in danger if you didn't maintain... Like, will you check, like, once a month, whereby if you weren't strong, you were in danger of being sent to the gas chamber, so you had to appear to be physically fit for those inspections that you could keep working? Did that happen? Every day. Every, every day. day? Oh, I, I didn't realize yes. it was every oh, day. There was, there was this call that, that, in German, it was called Zähl Appell, which means... Sailing, counting. It was every day they, we had to go out. They threw us out from the barracks at five in the morning, dark, rain or shine. And we stood in lines of five, rows of five. And, and eventually, a few hours later, the German delegation would come out, all dressed up in their warm clothes, and go look up and down and count. I mean, and mainly it wasn't for counting. Nobody escaped. They looked down the road to see who was not looking healthy enough and who they missed. And not only who they missed at the arrival, but what has happened to people since. And yes, if people were run down and skinny, lost, lost weight or in some way injured, sure, they just, all they did is with a finger, you know, motioned, come on, come on out. And we all knew that we'll never see them again. Mrs. Weiss, how did you, I mean, how does anyone cope with that kind of pressure? You work all day. You could be killed at any time. There's, they're checking you every day. You're seeing these horrors every second. How, how do, you, do you do just a human mechanism just allows one to sleep and cope with that? Is that just how you get by just day by day? It's, it's very difficult to explain what happens to one when you are uh, uh, you're presented with things that are not in the um, in in the realm of civilization, even if you're living in poverty or you're discriminated against or whatever hardships you have had before, this is a new world. This is a world created for the purpose of killing. Right. People b being brought in there were eighty percent of them were killed upon arrival, and they were killing children and elderly. And once you realize that it was a, a closed place surrounded by electrified wires and soldiers are managing the, this, this world, they are the ones who are going to decide and do decide every day who will live and who will die. Once you know you're, ca you're caught in a... In a I, I myself decided as a 13-year-old that it's not even on planet Earth, and it surely cannot be in Europe, and that it's a place that is hidden in, in the woods somewhere, and it's not on the map, and that if people knew about it, of course, this would be stopped immediately. And so you're no longer in anything on this Earth, because it's unearthly things are happening there. Exactly, so yes. You you become changed yourself in a way that it, it's hopeless, there is no reprieve, there is no one to turn to, we're in a world of a neverland, and you change, you become hardened, you become, you're, you know, my eyes could see the huge columns of women and children marching into the gate of the gas chambers and my brain would not accept it you know my eye could see it but my brain 
rejected it. Mrs. Weiss, can I ask so, you, was there any information on the Russians that were eventually liberated and, and forced the Germans to close Auschwitz? Did you have any news that the war was going badly for the Germans? Did anything get through to you when you were in these bad times? Well, towards the end of 1944, well, in, in January 1945, uh, Russia, I mean, Russian army was approaching Auschwitz and and as you probably know, the, the Germans evacuated Auschwitz, and they took us out of there. Most, most of the people, some hid and stayed behind, but they took us several thousand who were still alive, and they took us on a death march away from Auschwitz and deeper into Germany, so we would not be liberated. But what, what, to answer your question, we heard anti-aircraft, we heard bombings in the distance, we heard bombing of that other facility, uh, part of Auschwitz, where they were, there was a chemical factory where prisoners were also made to work. That was bombed by the Allies, which sounded very close to us. Right. We heard war approaching, but we never had any news of any kind. But I dare say that some of the prisoners might have, you know, heard something or had some kind of an um, an underground system where they would hear something from the outside world. But we newcomers, new, new arrivals, we were too stunned. and we, were, we had no connections with anyone to find out. But we did hear the war approaching. Mrs. Boy, some, of, some of the Jews obviously cooperated with the Germans so they could live longer. I believe they were called kapos. Is that correct? Yes, there were kapos. And did you, re did, did you resent? I mean, first of all, did those kapos, did they live separately from you or did they live in the barracks too? No, they lived in the barracks. They were usually the kind of the supervisors of the barracks. They would be right in the same barrack. They were given some extra uh, authority to manage the prisoners, and as a result, they had some, uh, better conditions and more food and so on. And they were, they were part of our, our families and part of our you know, Jewish population. There were some who were very, very good, and never lost their humanity and were very, very helpful. And there were some who had brought, been brought there two, three years ago from Poland, from Ukraine. They were teenagers when they got there. They were totally dehumanized. They've told us stories of what they did to them. Some of them didn't have any teeth in their, in their mouth anymore. They were beaten out. They said, they were the ones who built the barracks in the mud. Most of them were killed, and the few who survived, you know, looked to see how they can you know, do a little bit, have a little more food and have a little more shelter. And they, they you know, maybe did a, did a little more than was required of them. We certainly understood that there were some of those. But when you examine their suffering in their past and how long they were dehumanized there, it really wasn't so exceptional. But the ones, you know, coming in newly and, and from even the Hungarian and Slovakian Jews who'd come a little bit later, uh, most of them were decent people. Did you, they, did, did people, yeah, they did people, show, you know, had to show the Germans something so that they should continue to have their, you know, position. So most, most of the couples you thought were actually decent. They weren't terrible people. 
there were some who were terrible. There so, is no okay. denying it. And what about right. the Germans? Were, were any of the Germans nice? I mean, were any of the Germans humane? Were, were there any? Was there any kindness shown, or any kind of people that questioned what they were doing, or maybe gave you extra food, or gave any kind of humanity at all to you? The answer is no, absolutely no, because they did not look at us as human beings. There was absolutely no um, human connection between us. We would not we didn't dare look into their eyes they did not look at us they walked around with a with a, a stick or a cane uh, you know treating you in, in uh, what i would like to transmit but cannot and I could is what it feels like when one human being is in complete charge of you and looks at you as a, a, a vermin or a person that has has no relation to to the humanity that he has, and, and looks at you as a subhuman. And when that is achieved from that human being that you are a subhuman to him, then he can do anything to you, and you are you are just trapped in a way that is indescribable for the recipient of this treatment of not being a human being to another human being. And that's what they exhibited. We were terrified of them. The very uniform, you all, for years later, just the uniform represented total control over your life your parents' life, your children's lives, your, your entire being. You were nothing, and that's why they could take little children and, and, and their mothers and fathers and murder them, because they were not people to them. So when, no, kind, no, no kindness. So when the German SS said after the war that they were just basically following orders, and th there was an interview with Karl Frenzel, who was a deputy at Sobibor, and basically a Holocaust survivor interviewed him, and it's the only one, I believe, that I've seen. And, and basically Frenzel says it was a bad time in Germany. We had to do these things. We were swept up. There were these terrible economic things. You obviously don't give that any cause, because your feeling is they made a choice to act this way, each and every one of them. Is, is that correct? Oh, they absolutely believed that this was necessary. It was absolutely their, their feeling that it's their duty, that it's good for the country, and that, don't forget, they also uh, gained a lot of um, material things, a lot of value that helped them continue the war. It, it was not, uh, you know... All the wealth of the European Jews went went to them, but basically, the propaganda that Hitler started and continued in Germany and other countries that they occupied, the propaganda was well planned. It was uh, focused on the Jews. The, the, they accused the Jews of disloyalty, of spying, of of starting. Uh, fam epidemics of usurping, um, of at attacking non-Jewish women. The men were to, you know, attack girls. Every kind of crime 
imaginable on earth. Mrs. Weiss, I'm sorry, could right. I, just, just while I have you, did you have any contact with Auschwitz III, the so-called work camps where I.G. Farben, or were you just limited to your area of Birkenau? I.G. Farben was separate. People did not come back and forth between them. They, they had barracks there, too. Okay. Now, I never had any any contact with IT Farben, but that was that was the place that was bombed by the Allies at one point. Could could you please? Because they didn't know about it, and by the way, the Allies knew about Auschwitz also very well. Right, I, that, and the Holocaust Museum has um, letters to that effect. Could I just ask you then? So now the war is coming to the end. As you said before, you were transported to I believe it's called Ravensbrück, deep within Germany. Is is that right? Well, when we were taken out of Auschwitz and we were on this death march. We passed, we passed Ravensbrück, and they held us there, you know, as just a stopping point for a while. But they continued after that. There were huge numbers of uh, prisoners moving from all the concentration camps, not only Auschwitz, away from the Russian front, deeper into Germany. And so, yes, we were in Ravensbrück for a while, but they continued to take us further. And we ended up in a concentration camp near Hamburg by the time the war ended May 8th. We were, it, Auschwitz was, was evacuated in January 1945. Five months later, in May, when the war was over, we were liberated. It took five more months of being dragged deeper into Germany. May I just, you know, in preparation for talking to you today, I looked at Ravensbrück, and what, what fascinated me is that there actually was a gas chamber at Ravensbrück on German soil, and approximately, they're not sure exactly, but approximately 5,000 people were dead, which I found fascinating because I don't think most people realize that there were gas chambers on German soil, not just in the death camps in Poland. Were you aware of that at the time? Well, I was, I was intimately aware because by the time we were dragged through Germany and ended up, as I just said, near Hamburg in a camp which was called Neustadt Gleve. It was a small camp, and it, it did not have a gas chamber. However, the selection of people to be taken to gas chambers continued no matter what camp we were in. And so in this camp, they were constantly pulling out the sick and the, the weak ones, and a truck came from Ravensbrück and took these people from this camp to the gas chamber in Ravensbrück. And so towards the very end, just maybe three weeks before the war ended, my sister was selected. And because I was absolutely terrified to be alone, I stepped up and said that I'm her sister, and they said to me, well, you can go too. Oh, my so gosh. They, they selected some other women, about a half a dozen, who were in very bad physical shape, and they locked us in a room, and we waited for the truck to come because we, we understood what it meant, and we had seen the truck come before and watched people walk into, into the truck and go to Ravensbrück. So that day we were waiting for the truck to come, and at it, it, by the end of the day, the truck had not arrived, and somebody pushed the door, and it, it opened, and so each one of us sort of sneaked back, got out of there and sneaked back into our barrack. What it turned out was that the war was so near, and there was so much going on with the Russian front approaching, that the truck could not arrive from Ravensbrück to this place. 
And that is why <laughs> my sister and I survived, because had the truck come that day like it did several days before, we would have been taken to Ravensburg. Amazing. So you, you dodged death on multiple occasions just for, for seemingly small things. May I ask you, was the SS in charge of the camp at Ravensbrück as well? Oh, sure. And oh, absolutely. What, what's amazing to me is that they were just continuing to be so zealous in killing and maintaining order, even, as you said, until May 8th, and when Hitler was dead, and, and, and it was clear they were going to lose, and they were being invaded on both sides, and their, their fervor continued. It's just amazing. Yes, yes. Uh, this is, it was a fervor. It was a religion. It was a dedication. It was a total change of human uh, outlook, of, of being human. And it was all because of propaganda. It is what perhaps you should, you know, emphasize what lies and propaganda uh, can do to people, how you can convert them from being human beings to being animals. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's, that's Hitler accomplished that by the relentless, relentless, uh, propaganda and lies about Jews, and then controlled the, the, the their own people. You know, their own people could only be allowed to do whatever the government allowed them to do. They were not free either, but they didn't realize that. Mrs. Weiss, because there was somebody who was less free. What do you say to people that uh, that question Auschwitz and they say the smoke was from the IG Farben facility and there wasn't gassing? And how, how, do you do you even think those people are worth debating, or do you just do you just think it's not even worth engaging with someone like that, a Holocaust denier? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't know where to begin. Um, it, the documentation about Auschwitz. And the final solution of the Jews is so, so well known. There are so many original documents that the Germans left behind, their plan, how they carried it out, every camp. How can anybody say anything like that? Those people are, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how to, how to even begin. It's not that who says what. It's documented. Right, it's just based on hate. It's not based on any kind of historic fact. Well, I, I, I assume that you are looking at the historic documents. If you, if you are not, you, you should go to the Holocaust Museum and have them show, show you original documents. Of every step of the way is documented. The Germans left a clear plan Every step of the way, they counted how many they killed. The plan was agreed to, signed by the people that, that they later on were prosecuting in Nuremberg. This isn't some right. flimsy kind of... No, I understand. No, I, I'm just saying, I, I believe it was the Wannsee Conference, January 42. And what's interesting, initially, when they started killing German children, which I believe is how the gassing started, Hitler didn't put that in writing. And only later and reluctantly did he put things in writing. Because some people say, well, there was nothing in writing ordering this from Hitler. Well, it wasn't his style, as I understand it, to put these terrible things in writing if he could avoid it. And of course, with the gassing of the, of the German children uh, who were retarded, that was initially not put in writing either. So, uh, just well, a, that is documentation for that too. Yes, there, there are doctors and nurses and people who knew it and testified to it. 
natural. You know, everything was denied during Hitler's time. But after that, and then the people believed what they were told because there was no other information. If they could keep from us in Hungary the fact that there was an Auschwitz, you can imagine how tightly they controlled that information. Mr. In 1944, we still did not know where most of the Jews of Europe had already been killed. I only have two minutes left, so just to ask you, after having gone through an experience like this and, and surviving it, and I believe you got married, and you were a teacher in Virginia, is that correct? Yes, I was. So d- after you go through an experience like that, is one positive that like every day seems a blessing to not have to go through that and that you, you have a, a respect for life? Is that is that one plus that comes out of going through something so awful? No. No. <laughs> My disrespect and disillusionment in people is what is left. Okay. That, that people can be turned against each other, whether they're religious or not, whether they're uh, educated or not, they can be turned by propaganda, lose their humanity, commit atrocious crimes against other people, kill each other's children, and, and go back into their community and act like nothing happened and pick up their lives, have their own marriage and their children, and go on living. That's, that's what I don't understand. D- does it a way make you afraid that, that it might happen again? And that, is that, does, it, does it leave a fear with you? Like someplace well, in the world? I would think that Since the Holocaust, there have been genocides without stop. Like Rwanda. Taking a year or two off on all the continents of Europe, and and of uh, the continents in Europe and in Africa and Asia, and it continues to this day. People are doing it to each other in many countries. Some some do it by, by... Shooting, some do it with machetes, some do it by starving people, but they're doing it to each other this minute and never stopped since the Holocaust. Well, so this is the problem, well, that people can be led to do things against each other by just lies, propaganda, religion, and all kinds of other distractions from reality, well, by making them feel superior, making others feel inferior, subhuman, deserving to die, on and on. Ms. <laughs> Ms. I just want to say, I'm sorry, we're, all, we're basically out of time, but thank you so much for coming on today and educating us and telling us these awful experiences, but hopefully will lead to a better understanding of what occurred and so it never happens again. And I very much appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on. And um, that was Irene Weiss. This is Intelligent Talk, and thank you for being with us.